Hello, party people. Can we hear some noise? We are back. We are back with root causes of SIBO. So this is part two of our root cause conversation. If you missed Mm. the initial kind of root cause conversation, go check out that episode. But since a lot of you people have SIBO, and you're most curious about SIBO, let's talk about some root causes of SIBO. And I guess we could say IBS as well, because I think that there's a lot of overlap between those two worlds. Um, Mm. Would you like to start us off, my darling? Yeah, I will say too, we're doing a lot of two parters in season two, which I like, which I like the mood. We're in the mood. You know? Again, we, we can't fit it all in in a logistical, timely manner. So we have to extend it to multi-episodes. Um, yeah, but I, I I like that we talked about the framework and of root causes last time. I I think, again, like from, a, from an IBS SIBO standpoint, I would say probably one of the biggest is like post-infectious type issues. Mm. Um, I think there can be multiple things that happen here. You know, the biggest one that you hear a lot about is just kind of like the nerve, the nervous system effects that happen post, um, post infection where the body almost mounts an autoimmune type attack Mm -hmm. on the nerves post, um, post food poisoning or like gut infection type event. I also think sometimes people can have like longstanding or like some dysbiosis brew post Mm. uh, infection just with kind of the diarrhea and the inflammation and all that stuff that is driven post infection. But I think for the most part, most people who have long term post infection issues have some nervous system breakdowns that have occurred through that time that might be ongoing post the actual incident. So if you're having these immune reactions that are essentially attacking the nerves or the nerve proteins in the gut, then you're going to have longer term issues and it's not going to be so acute. It's going to be a little bit more chronic. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think that that's a really, really common one. I, I know like it's sometimes one of the more obvious ones because you'll talk to people and they'll be like, I was never the same after I had that barbecue sandwich. And you're like, blast that barbecue sandwich. Was it worth it? You know? Um, so I was all finicky too at Thanksgiving. We're recording this right after Thanksgiving, but like, you know, my mom, like, botched the turkey and the turkey was not cooked in the middle and they're like well the outside's okay and i'm like ah like i there's no way i'm gonna eat this she had another like turkey breast that was cooked it was weird she had like two and one was cooked all the way i'm like i'm definitely gonna eat the one that we know is cooked like i'm not gonna risk it at all Um, or maybe take that undercooked one and just slap it in the microwave for like right right. three minutes on high just kill it the rest of the way and then maybe it'll be edible Right. Yeah. Probably dodged a bullet there. I do. Likewise, I find that my family, not my husband for the record, but my family, like my parents are much more lackadaisical about possible food poisoning than I am. And like, I was never super anal about that. But seeing people with post-infectious SIBO Mm. or post-infectious IBS, I'm like, "Eh." (laughs) if I'm going to be, uh, skittish around something it's probably going to be this because like I've seen it I've seen it really wreck people's health but to your point um and I know like Dr. Pimentel aka according to one person I heard Dr. P. Mental 
Mm. I'm never going to stop saying that. I thought that that was the worst thing ever. (laughs) Well, now I keep Uh, saying it like in reality, like I'm just like now confused what the actual pronunciation is because you say pimental all the time. So I'm like, (laughs) sometimes I'll talk to people and I'm like, yeah, pimental uh, or pimental. Uh, Like, again, I get thrown a little bit with how I'm speaking just because we talk so much and you've been really sticking to pimental. I know. I just because it's so funny, like... Really, you thought that's how the guy's name was pronounced. And also, right. have you not heard him be introduced ever? Right, um, right. But, you know, it's funny you say that, by the way, as a side tangent. Uh, so my in-laws' first names are uh, Barb and Paul. Well, sometimes for fun, like, we'll, we'll refer to them jokingly as Parb and Ball. But then we've done that so many times that now... Like, sometimes accidentally we'll refer to them that way. And luckily they know and they think it's funny. But my mom was like, we have to stop calling them that. Because I accidentally called them that when they were here last time. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, it's fine. But anyhow, um, that delights me that I'm... See, I'm seeping into your everyday life. I'm seeping Mm -hmm. into your subconscious little by little. And you're never going to get rid of me. I'm like a fungus. Oh, gosh. Um, But uh, the friendly kind of fungus, at least. Mm -hmm. The fun fun fungi. Mm -hmm. But... um, But yeah, I think to your point, you know, I've heard Dr. Pimentel talk about this before. And if you look at like those IBS smart tests, for example, you could have an antibody against the CDTB, the the toxin of the bacteria. Mm -hmm. Cytolithial distending toxin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or you could have the antivinculin antibody. And that's like the autoimmune one that's it's attacking the nerves of the intestines that regulate motility. Um, and I know I've heard him say, like, if the anti-CDTB comes back positive, which I think I've only seen once, then that probably means that you had food poisoning, like, more recently, or you mm-hmm. have an immune response against that, and it's still ongoing. Um, versus if you have the anti-vinculin antibodies, then that's more of what you're talking about, like this autoimmune, like inflammatory kind of barrage on the the neurons that run motility. And oftentimes, I think that those guys have two flavors. Like this, this world, I should say the post infectious IBS, there are the people who are like, I had food poisoning, and I was never the same since almost like I never recovered. Is another way to say it like, like ever since I had that hot dog from the street vendor in Chicago, like I've had IBS ever since then, or I've had SIBO ever since then. Some people, though, because of this autoimmune thing, some people, they'll have the food poisoning, and that totally sucks. And then they'll have like a month or two or three or four where they feel like they've recovered and they're pretty okay. And then later on, the food poisoning kind of sets in, or they they get the IBS symptoms rather. So it's a little bit squirrelier where people are like, I don't know what my root cause was because nothing happened around that time period. But I had had food poisoning like four months prior. Do you think that's related? So sometimes it could be a delayed thing. And the way I've kind of explained it is like, on the very first day that you have autoimmunity, you still have 99.9999999999% of a functioning tissue. So the tissue function is not compromised yet. But then maybe weeks or months or years down the road, you you hit a tipping point where that tissue or that gland is compromised and now the neurons can't do their job or now the thyroid can't make thyroid hormone efficiently or the insulin the pancreas can't make insulin you know whatever it might be for the autoimmunity 
And I think that might be what's happening with those people is like the delayed response is like it just took that long for the anti-vinculin autoimmunity to really get cooking and do its thing yeah. and damage the motility. But either way, it, this creates a problem of of poor motility, of dysmotility. Either way you look at it. Yeah. And I agree, I, the dysbiosis thing too. Yeah, it's interesting that you st- you're talking about the time frame because I also feel, you know, there's going to be people too where – the inflammatory process and how aggressively their body is attacking the vinculin could be different. So like some people, again, it might be a little bit more of like a subtle increase in that antibody and then other people might have sky high Mm -hmm. and it just really aggressively is causing a lot of damage to the nerve proteins. So I do think there's a lot of factors like what you're saying that could affect the speed of which the the breakdowns occur. Um, so yeah, I like that you bring that up that it doesn't really have to be the immediate effect. And I've definitely had conversations with my clients where it's been like, Oh, you said you had a food poisoning around this time. And then like, you know, six months down the road, things were really, the wheels were really coming off. Mm -hmm. Certainly could be at play still. It's not like you're totally out of the woods at that point. Um, yeah. And I will interject here, though, if I may. Yeah. Um, I, I think probably one of the recurring themes I see the most is that people are really, really desperate to have answers right. and find their root cause. Like, mm-hmm. this is a really hot topic. Um, I think that for better or for worse, the internet and functional medicine lead you to believe that you will not get better if you don't know the root cause. Right. And I think that also we paint this picture of like, you could definitely always know your root cause. You just have to oh, keep yeah. like digging for it. Um, so it's not to say like, if you're one of these people who are like, I don't know my root cause, nothing makes sense. Oh, maybe it's this. Like, maybe I would say ballpark, probably if you had food poisoning or what you believe to be food poisoning within about six months of the onset of symptoms, that's where I would start to think, yeah, this could be related. And this is where you could do that blood test, like IBS Smart. You know, it's 200 bucks or 250 right. or something USD. So it's not terribly expensive, but that could tell you if you have this autoimmunity at play instead of just theorizing. Um, but yeah, it's not to say that like everybody who can't think of the root cause or can't figure out the root cause, like this is going to be it for them. Um, yeah, well, and I, I think to your point, not everyone that has food poisoning probably is going to develop antibodies either. So, you know, there's certainly a bunch of people that I've worked with where they're like, maybe even it, it was a driver in their progression of getting worse, like a worsening progression, but they get tested and they don't really have the antibodies or again, like they're not super responsive to prokinetics or, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they get some relief, but it's not like they need them ongoing or like there's, do you know what I mean? Like they're not necessarily reflecting what I would think if it was like a a strictly kind of an autoimmune situation, they might be more responsive to some of the interventions. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I don't think that everyone with food poisoning has these, has like an autoimmune type presentation either. Um, So that's something to keep in mind too. You can't just think that like, oh, my food poisoning is the only factor as well. If yeah. there's all these precipitating factors as well, maybe you've had 
gut symptoms your whole life. Cause I'll kind of talk to people too. And they're like, well, this food poisoning really shifted the scale. But then you actually talk to them and it's like, oh no, they've been having IBS symptoms for a long time. They were just not, they were more of an annoyance than a, mm. than a big burden. Um, and not as life disrupting as they are now. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're probably, and I think too, it's interesting just talking about food poisoning and infections. How many times have you been somewhere and like, you know, you have six friends eating the same food and, and two people have horrible food poisoning. And then like four people are like, oh, I'm fine. How irritating yeah. it is when the people mm-hmm. that are fine, you're like, ah, blast. I, I don't yeah. like that. You're, I don't want you to feel ill, but why am I feeling ill and you're not? Um, Unfair is the word you're looking for. It's unfair. But but yeah, I think that usually people have maybe some genetic predisposition. Maybe there's some, again, the microbiome's already a little bit hanging on by a thread or like not necessarily overly... Right. It's already dysbiotic in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of stress or something. So again, there's definitely some reasons or you have digestive capacity, like maybe your stomach acid didn't kill the pathogen. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you're someone that's, that has tended to get food poisoning when other people haven't, that there, there could be again, like some breakdowns preceding that probably that make you more prone anyway. Um, Yeah. And similarly, like, you could have 10 people who have had food poisoning, like honest to goodness, confirmed food poisoning. And not all of those people will go on to develop post-infectious IBS. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of rabbit trailing off of what you said, it's similar, I think. Things that would make you more susceptible to post-infectious IBS when you do have food poisoning. I bet uh, pre-existing dysbiosis is probably one of those factors. Mm -hmm. Right, because then like the ecosystem has a harder time recovering and like dampening the inflammation and the inflammatory process that leads to the autoimmunity. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I bet, I mean, I would love to see this studied, but I bet people who have pre-existing autoimmune conditions, if they get food poisoning, I bet that there's more of a likelihood that they'll develop post-infectious IBS as mm-hmm. opposed to a person who does not have pre-existing autoimmunity. Because it's almost like, like the immune system is already like a little bit jacked up, a little bit persnickety and jumpy, jumpy. Yeah, jumpy. It's already a little jumpy. And the immune system has already made one mistake, right? Like if the immune system accidentally attacks your thyroid, who's to say the nerves couldn't be next. So it's kind of like uh, once you pop the fun, don't stop with autoimmunity, I think. And you just accumulate more and more autoimmune conditions if you don't keep it in check. So I yeah. I bet that dysbiosis, pre-existing autoimmunity, and to a lesser extent, pre-existing inflammation mm. would probably be the things that make you more prone to the PIIBS kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. Um, so I feel like we covered this pretty good. Do you have anything else? Do we want to move on? I feel like we covered that I think pretty extensively. Pretty, pretty good. I'll, I I want to give us a something to noodle on before we move on to other ones. Yeah. Um, You could almost kind of zoom out on this topic and say like, all right, what, what things could possibly be a root cause for SIBO? Cause right. We're going to cover some things in this episode, but there's a laundry list of other things of like, Oh, 
Could Lyme disease cause it? Could mold cause it? Could stress cause it? Could mercury poisoning cause it? Could, you know, insert name of inflammatory event here. And you start to kind of wonder, like, is it plausible that this could be a SIBO root cause? And knowing that we're not going to cover 100% of the possible root causes in this episode, though we may try, um, I'll just give us a framework at this point to say, um, I don't know about you, but I firmly believe at this point that there's two, maybe three primary issues going on with SIBO and IBS in general. One is poor motility. Two is dysbiosis. Um, and three is like mast cell kind of stuff. There is quite a bit of research that there's, there are either more mast cells or the mast cells are more uh, like irritable and degranulated in the small bowel or the colon or both of people who have IBS. So I I wonder, I think that the other two things are the primary root causes of SIBO. I think it's dysmotility and dysbiosis, but then maybe a tertiary one could be that's like directly contributing to, to it, but also is probably secondary to the others. I think it's mast cell and like histamine kind of issues. Right. Um, so now you can kind of zoom out and go, okay, what, what sorts of things could possibly cause dysbiosis? what kind of things could cause poor motility or like you could also think of it under the umbrella of nervous system impairment, mm-hmm. right? Cause like the nerves need to run the motility. Right. So if you think broadly about like the enteric nervous system and the vagus nerve, like we're basically just talking about the health of neurons at the end of the day here with motility. So you mm-hmm. can kind of zoom out and think like, all right, what kind of things would piss off some neurons and make them not do their job super well. What kind of things would cause dysbiosis and what kind of things might piss off or degranulate mast cells and make them lose their minds. So maybe that's a good, good segue into let's talk about hypochlorhydria, low stomach acid. Cause Mm -hmm. I think that's, these are probably the top two in addition to stress, which we, I think we could talk about next, but we're rounding out the top three most common contributors uh, to IBS and SIBO. So do you want to weigh in a little bit about hypochlorhydria? Yeah, so that's low stomach acid. Fancy, fancy speak, fancy speak for low stomach acid. I think again, when it comes to stomach acid, again, I like that you're zooming out because I think the knee jerk reaction is let's throw some HCL in the mix, which could certainly be helpful in supporting HCL levels while you're doing other things to to correct some imbalances. And like we've talked, like if you're just someone that prefers to take HCL forever, that's fine too. Like no judgment here. If that's how you want to want to manage the low stomach acid scenario. But typically again, there's a, there's some different root causes for low stomach acid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think when you have lower stomach acid, it just throws the piach, 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 <laughs> piach, please, piach, please, piach, please. Oh my God. That's my favorite thing ever now. <laughs> now you're going to just call me a piach all the time. Yep. yep. Um, I'm writing but, this down. I'm writing the marker down. So I know where to refer to with this video again. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, but the pH is thrown off for the piach, as I said before, the piach is thrown off downstream and pH I feel as though it's not talked about a lot but 
when you're t- thinking about dysbiosis, why would you develop dysbiosis? There's typically going to be environmental factors that break down. We already talked about like motility breaking down if you mm-hmm. have food poisoning. Well, if you have low stomach acid, pH changes will cause different bacteria and microbes to grow compared yeah. to other microbes. So it, it's not as conducive to a healthy microbiome if your pH is off. And again, just generally, you're going to feel symptomatic eating foods if your stomach is off as well. Like you're, you yeah. could feel that digestive insufficiency um, occurring if you don't have enough stomach acid. So again, there's an aspect of that directly driving symptoms, um, but then also creating an environment where the dysbiosis thrives um, yeah. from and a the SIBO. Thrives right. The SIBO, <clears throat> the SIBO thrives. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're spot on that. A, like low stomach acid. It, if you look up the symptoms of low stomach acid, or even if you look up symptoms of H. pylori, which we know suppresses stomach acid, like they have a lot of overlap with the symptoms of IBS and SIBO. Right. Like postprandial fullness, bloating, burping, feeling like the food just kind of like sits in your gut like a brick of lead. Um, just a lot of it overlaps with the symptoms of SIBO and the symptoms of IBS in general. And to your point, like if you're just not breaking down your food, like chemically, and you're not digesting your food, you're not digesting your protein, your B vitamins, your minerals, like that's throwing off your digestive capacity and your ability to absorb and assimilate nutrients. So that alone is going to cause a lot of symptoms. But then you know, altering the pH of the environment, it it's kind of like if you were in a microbiology lab and you had a bunch of Petri dishes, right? Like you could theoretically try to grow one bacteria and you could set the pH of one dish to like 2.0, the next one at 3.0, the next one at 4.0, 5.0, 6.0, 7.0, 8.0, 9.0, 10.0. And you could try to grow the same bacteria on all 10 of those plates And you're going to find that there's a sweet spot where like maybe that particular bacteria grows really, really well at a pH of eight and it grows reasonably well at a pH of seven or a pH of nine. But then once you get down to a certain range, like pH of six, it won't grow at all. Mm -hmm. Or maybe another bacteria does really well at a pH of four, but by the time you get up to like a six or a seven, it's totally dead. So, you know, it's like you're altering the chemistry of the Petri dish in the stomach itself, but also the small intestine, if you if if you're altering the pH and having things like low stomach acid, or low digestive capacity. So yeah, that's brewing an environment ripe for the growth of bacteria and ripe for the growth of uh, bacteria that you don't want specifically. Usually when we have pH issues, it you're not going to grow like a nice healthy crop of bifidobacteria in the, that situation. It's going to be like a nice healthy crop of candida and proteobacteria. Right. Yeah. And I, again, I, I think, too, if you're peeling back the layers of as to, and we've done whole episodes on these things, but if you're peeling back the layers of, of well, what's driving, Nikki is peeling back a, an onion like Shrek. In it the started as Shrek. an onion. And then I kind of went with banana and I was going to take a bite, but then I decided that would be too weird even for me. So anyhow, 
if you're not on YouTube right now, you missed out on that acting. We skill went. Of mine. We went very down. Uh, this episode is is has been fun. We have the piach moment. We have the. If you're not watching it, we had peeling of an onion slash banana. We're all slash over the board here. But I do think, like I was saying earlier, I think the knee jerk approach is, oh, I'll just take HCL and that'll cover the base. And I find a lot of people aren't peeling back the onion enough there as to what might be at play or off driving the low stomach acid. I think low stomach acid can be driven by like nutrient nutrient deficiencies. Why am I struggling with my words today? Am I having a stroke? What's going on? You're distracted Um, by my beauty. Oh yeah, that's it. Uh, But nutrient deficiencies um, such as like iron, zinc, I even think magnesium works some of the pumps that make Mm. acidity or that yep. pull um, hydrogen ions into to make the HCL and make um, yeah. stomach acid. Um, I think protein and calories are also going to be important yeah. for stomach acidity and really digestive function as a whole. So those things can be at play. Other things like nervous system stuff plays a big role in acidity. If you're stressed or mm-hmm. constantly in fight or flight, you're not going to be producing yep. a ton of acid or maybe enough acid for you. Um, H. pylori, we talked a little bit about that. I think any sort of damage to the to the gut lining can also, or the stomach lining, like if someone has gastritis, yeah. um, sometimes that can be a play. Drinking, NSAID and, use, that kind yep, of stuff. NSAIDs. And to that point with gastritis, there's atrophic gastritis specifically, which is autoimmunity against the parietal cells, aka autoimmunity against the cells that make stomach acid. Right. So you could be just inadvertently attacking those parietal cells, and then that's why you're not able to make a ton of HCL. Right. Um, right. And and I should have said at the beginning, just for the record, we have an entire episode about post-infectious IBS from season one, and we have entire episodes on hypochlorhydria and H. pylori from season one. So if you want a deep dive, you could absolutely check those out next. Right. But yeah, there are a lot of root causes of the root cause, so to speak. Um, I think also, I just want to emphasize stress. Like if you're in fight or flight mode, or fight, flight, freeze, appease mode, as I've heard it called in more recent years, like if you're in survival mode, you do not have the energy or the resources to worry about something piddly like stomach acid. You, your body, for whatever reason, thinks that you need to run away from the metaphorical tiger and you're in survival mode. So like just going back to all of the vagus nerve, vagal tone, stress mitigation kind of stuff and like getting solid sleep and, and just managing your stress like that alone could really just allow the stomach to do its job properly. So I think, I think that's probably one of the most common causes of hypochlorhydria, honestly. Well, and I think stress in general is going to be, is going to hinder motility, digestive capacity, immune function, histamine, Mm -hmm. like everything that you just mentioned as being, you know, big umbrellas as to what causes IBS and SIBO is going to be affected by stress. I think nutrition is the other big one. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for big themes that affect all three of those, um, stress and nutrition that's why it's so important again like 
to manage your stress and to get enough nutrition. And those are probably the two biggest things that I feel like my clients struggle the most with or have not put enough emphasis on in their strategies to get better. They've focused a lot more on trying to get their protocol correct, restricting foods. Um, you know, maybe they, they've talked about stress, but it's just like, it's not stress, you know? So yeah, kind of like a denial a little bit. Yeah. And again, like I do have some clients who are very aware that stress is at play and they just are struggling to manage it well. But I think more often the trend is, oh, I have stress, but I don't think that's it. And, or, you know, I'm doing some stress management, um, but it's not something they've totally, they've put a ton of emphasis on. Um, but yeah, I think like stress and nutrition weave through all the layers yep. of the umbrellas that you'd mentioned yep. and are so foundational. Um, yep. And again, that's why you don't want to skip beyond the unsex or the, the unsexy things. You want to yep. do the unsexy things really well, because if you don't, it's just hard to make progress with anything digestively. Well, A, you're not going to make as much progress, but B, you're going to be wasting your time and money. Right, right. Like, even, you know, with histamine as a good example, too, hearkening back to that, like, I I tell students right in the beginning with FODMAP Freedom, I'm like, we don't talk about histamine and mast cells until I think it's like week nine out of 12. Because even if you had histamine issues, like honest to goodness, for sure histamine issues, if you start with that, you're going to be like, okay, maybe I need quercetin and vitamin C and bromelain and ginger and this and this and perilla. And like, you're going to get a whole bunch of stuff on board for the histamine. And it may or may not work great. Versus if we could cover the unsexy basics in the first half of the course, and do like the sleep, the stress mitigation, the vagal tone, the digestive juices, the HCL, like if we can work on those things first, and lay the foundation, by the time you get to the histamine stuff, it'll be fine tuning. And then you probably will only need like one or two little tweaks by the time you get there, even if you do have full rampant overt histamine issues. So it's like, you're going to make your you're going to get more bang for your buck if you go in the right order and you focus on the boring, unsexy stuff first. And that way you don't have to blow your whole budget on like fancy schmancy hormone supplements or histamine supplements or yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah. And I do think I've seen more, more recently some clients who have come to me and I feel like they're on a lot of good supplements for like their supplement strategies and like, a lot of the things they've tried have been great. So I'm like, I would have done the same stuff that you did, mm-hmm. but their nutrition's a wreck or like their nutrition's yeah. just totally off. And, you know, talking to them, I'm saying you can't really know how effective these things are if your nutrition's just been off this whole time. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important too, because I, the more I work in this space, a lot of times I'm like, you just you've done a lot of things that I think are good. It's just, I don't think they can really be as effective as you'd want them to be. And we'd want them to be if nutrition and stress and some of these other factors are in the mix in high degrees. And it's not like we're saying your nutrition has to be perfect. 
I eat cookies, I eat ice cream, I eat things that are not necessarily optimal for health, but I enjoy them. So it's not Mm -hmm. that you have to be perfect. I mean, everyone that's listened long enough probably knows that about us. But if that is not, if that base isn't covered like 80 to 90%, um, I do think that it can kind of cause some problems for some people. Um, So yeah. Yeah. Another way to think of it too, is that if, if something like sleep or stress or nutrition is not being covered, it's kind of like you throw a whole ton of wild cards into the deck, right? Like you might make progress. You might not. Who's to say, because you've got, you know, stress chemistry, messing with your gut brain axis, degranulating mast cells, whacking out your hormones, you know, like, it's just there's so many additional wild cards that makes it so much harder to pick up on patterns. And it makes it so much harder to actually like figure out what's going on. When you have something like stress or nutrition, muck it up the playing field. So that's that's another kind of way that I've explained it to patients before is that it's just throwing a lot of wild cards in that you do not need. Right. Um, but yeah, I think all right. So that segues pretty well, I think. So again, top three, in my opinion, top three root causes, post-infectious IBS, low stomach acid, and stress will round out the top three. And I think we maybe don't even have to talk about it a ton because we just did. But again, stress chemistry, whether we're talking about adrenaline or cortisol or corticotropin releasing factor, um, like there's a lot of different stress chemistry kind of hormones that we're talking about here. But all of them impede the ability of the vagus nerve to work. And therefore, the gut brain axis and the whole rest of digest thing. All of them are therefore going to throttle down your digestive juices. So your HCL, your bile, your pancreatic enzymes, they're all going to be in the toilet, if you have a lot of stress chemistry, Um, your motility, in the, in the stomach and the small bowel, motility grinds to a screeching halt, but then colonic motility speeds up. Mm-hmm. So I think we might have talked about this with Julia King uh, back when we did her episode, but it's, it's kind of like, um, I think she likened it to a zebra getting, getting uh, chased by a lion and sometimes they'll like lighten the load and they'll yeah. poop right that are there and yeah. then they will run. So it's it's because stress chemistry in the moment slows down stomach and small bowel motility and it purges the colon. Right. So acute stress will elicit diarrhea. Um, right. But like and it's it's inflammatory in excessive amounts. Like we were meant to deal with short bursts of stress chemistry. We were never meant to deal with long-term stress chemistry. Mm. Um, it'll mess with your sleep. It'll mess with your hormones. It degranulates mast cells, like you name it, anything bad in the body. And you could probably do a PubMed search for like whatever that bad thing is. And one of these stress hormones, and you're probably going to find some data supporting that there's a connection. So, um, yeah, stress is just like the ultimate wild card that you don't need in the deck. So if you can lighten the load and get rid of that or work on it to some degree, I think that that's going to help you quite a lot. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed, my friend. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that that I'm trying to think of where we should go from here. 
I mean, you were kind of oh. talking about some some hormones, like sometimes thyroid stuff. Yeah. And it's thyroid stuff too. There's a lot of people that I work with that I think don't really have outright autoimmune thyroid issues, but do have low T3. Mm. Um, and most of the time that's a dietary issue. Um, either like calories are low or carbs are low, mm. or at least that's the pattern that I see. And usually it can be corrected, but it's another potential factor that is very nutrition driven. Mm-hmm. Um, there can certainly be other things that could affect that conversion of T3, like cortisol and stress chemistry. Well, I was uh, going to say, but Amy, what about selenium? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Selenium. Um, I feel like that I feel was like, a little bit overblown personally. Well, I mean, like selenium cool. Don't get me wrong, but. Well, and I do feel like it's funny because you'll have people on selenium who are eating very selenium-rich diets. And it's like, no, I don't think selenium's the problem Yeah, because they're eating a lot of selenium in their diet, but they're eating no carbs. So, like, carbs is probably the reason why it's not converting because you need insulin yeah. to do that conversion. Mm-hmm. But, But insulin yeah. is evil. Yeah, I know. Don't we all know that insulin is the face <sighs> of all evil? I know. I, you know who we would be really fun to get on because he does so much work with insulin is Chris Masterjohn. Ooh, yeah. Um, cause he kind of like did a whole series debating the insulin theory of mm. like obesity and, and the insulin theory of disease. You know how there's that, that yeah, common thread yeah. in the functional medicine space that well, and the keto space that's kind right. of largely the basis of the keto movement is that insulin is evil. Right. Right. So Chris Master John did a whole, a couple podcast episodes on it that were really, really good. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that again, thyroid stuff, sometimes if it's just been a little wonky and usually it's people that have come from the functional space that know, oh, my thyroid's a little suboptimal. Sometimes mm-hmm. they've been on meds, sometimes they haven't. And I always just wonder, and usually again, in those cases, nutritional changes can really just stabilize things. I mean, if there's a true autoimmune issue, that could certainly be at play. But with thyroid stuff, it's definitely going to affect motility. So, um, you know, if you do have some perturbations in your thyroid uh, hormones, or again, like your thyroid hormones are a little bit low. The only other thing, like, I know you had an outright case of iodine deficiency. I don't think it's overly common, but... It's not. But like, again, if you're using some table salt... Um, but I, I do think iodine for some people, if they're just eating like sea salt could be at play too, Mm -hmm. but it's more the rarity than the exception. More often than not, calories and carbs are going to be the main thing. If your thyroid's just like a little off, but you don't have any antibodies. Um, yeah, I think the, the iodine thing is going to present more as like high TSH, low or normal T4. Right. Um, but then selenium theoretically would present more with low T3, but the other two are normal. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right. I think that just overall calories and carbs, that's probably the driving factor. And maybe stress too is a driving factor for that one as well. Um, But yeah, you know, certainly hypothyroidism can cause constipation. Hyperthyroidism can cause diarrhea uh, because it's speeding up and slowing down motility respectively. Uh, but, uh, a, there has been some research suggesting that hypothyroidism is correlated with SIBO specifically. Mm. So 
you know, maybe not just slowing down motility in the colon, like maybe it's also slowing it down in the small bowel. Right. Uh, But also, like going back to that kind of umbrella way to look at this, if you look at it from the lens of nervous system dysfunction, right, and just like, what would piss off a neuron? (laughs) And what would make it hard for a neuron to do its job effectively? Um, Thyroid hormone lights up the brain in such a good way, like it activates pathways, and like fires up those neurotransmitters. And it's, it's literally like, with hypothyroidism, it's like the lights are dimmed Hmm. in the brain. And then when you, when you correct the thyroid levels, it's like the lights are back on. And you're like, Oh, like, this is what my brain can do. This is cool. Um, So, you know, a lot of these symptoms of hypothyroidism, like, fatigue, brain fog, maybe some depression, um, like some sleep issues, like, that's all a hint to you that your brain is kind of being throttled down globally. And it's not as healthy as it could be. But then that also means that the other neurons in your body are not healthy. So like the vagal nerve nuclei and the vagus nerve and the enteric nervous system, those neurons are probably feeling the same way, but you just can't perceive the symptoms in the same way as you would your brain-based neurons. Um, So even from that perspective, or like you need thyroid hormone to heal the gut lining. So if you were to get some leaky gut for whatever reason, it's going to be a heck of a lot harder to heal that gut lining if you are also hypothyroid. Mm. Yep. So pretty important stuff. Um, yeah, but easy enough to test for. Yeah, like I do find most doc, most doctors are at least willing to run TSH. And I right. know a lot of people get kind of cranky with their doctors because they only want to run TSH. And my profession has convinced you that you need a full thyroid panel. And I like full thyroid panels, but also even just start with the TSH. Like, see if that gives you anything useful. And if it does not, and if you're still convinced that you have a thyroid issue, then you could press for a full panel. Or then maybe you could, like, go to another provider or go to something like directlabs.com or something like that. Hashtag not sponsored. Like, you could do something like that. But, you know, if your provider is only willing to order, like, TSH or TSH and T4, like, start with that at least. And take a stab at it and see if that turns up anything useful. Right. Because if you are blatantly hypothyroid and your TSH is elevated, then you just got answers for like relatively little hassle. And right. you might not need anything fancier than that to start out with. So, right. you know, but the thyroid thing is, is pretty important. And I just want to throw this out there. I might have talked about this because I'm, I'm 99% sure we have an episode about hypothyroidism as well in season one. Um, I think we do. But I'll mention this. There was an article a few years ago that came out that suggested that hypothyroidism is um, correlated with SIBO, but being on levothyroxine is actually more correlated with SIBO risk. And people wigged out. I think this was like a 2018 article. And people wigged out and started saying, oh, levo is evil. Levo is bad. Levo is causing SIBO. But I do just want to take a second to point out, I think that what's actually happening is that we're using the presence of this prescription medication as a proxy for how long term or how severe the autoimmunity is. Right. So like somebody who's been hypothyroid for years and years, and they've been on levothyroxine for years and years, 
they probably have also had Hashimoto's, aka an autoimmune inflammatory condition, for years and years, and nobody has told them. Or maybe they know, and they just haven't gotten it under control yet. But like, if you've gotten to the point where you need thyroid hormone medication, the autoimmunity has been going bonkers for at least a bit, versus somebody who's like, fresh off the street, just diagnosed with high TSH, they just found out yesterday that they had high TSH, like that person theoretically has not had an autoimmune process for nearly as long as like a 20 year veteran on levothyroxine. So I really think that it's not the levo so much that plays a role. I think it's like persistent inflammation or persistent autoimmunity that is messing with your motility, messing with, with your nervous system. And then that is conducive for SIBO and maybe messing with like the gut lining and stuff like that too. But I think that that's actually what, what made the correlation versus the drug itself. So don't, don't demonize levothyroxine too, too badly. Right. I remember us talking about this at some point. That's a really good point. It's a crapshoot in the previous 109 episodes where it would be, but I'm pretty sure there's a hypothyroid episode. So it would most likely be there that we discussed it. Right. Right, somewhere in the the, the deep, archives. dark archives. <laughs> um, yeah, where else do we want to go from here? Well, I think, I'm go ahead. I'm a teeny bit surprised that one hasn't come up yet. I was going to mention it before the hypothyroidism one came up. Um, antibiotics. Oh yes, yes, for, queen for the for the dysbiosis bit. Oh yeah, I mean one hundred percent. You ought to think of two things that'll cause dysbiosis pretty much 100% of the time. Right. Antibiotics and a restricted diet. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I wonder if that could be a root cause for SIBO or IBS or both as well. Um, certainly, like, I think, was it Cipro? I oh, seem yeah. to remember Cipro you was took... horrendous for me. Yeah, and yeah, that's where, like, cause... your symptoms got way worse, right? Yeah, I think, like, generally just... I've been on a lot of antibiotics in my lifetime, but, you know, when you're so desperate and then your doctor is like, you're for sure going to feel better once you take this drug for SIBO. Well, I couldn't get Rifaximin and my PCP was like, all I can get you is a CPRO. And the doc, the functional doc I was working with was a chiropractor and they were like, just do it. You'll feel a lot better. And I'm like, Okay. And I did it and just felt like absolute garbage. I had a lot of like fungal stuff pop up too. Mm. post that. Not surprising. Um, But yeah, I just think the more the degree of which you've been on antibiotics, like in your totality of your lifetime probably affects your the microbiome in a lot of different ways. And then like certain ones can be really big heavy hitters like CPRO can be a really nasty one. Um, for a number of reasons, but you know, it's pretty broad spectrum going to just knock a lot of stuff out. But yeah, I think what happens, I think there's a couple different things that happen. One that was actually described in a book. Do you remember Paul Jaminet? I haven't heard anything about him recently. I don't know if I know that name. Oh, what is his book? Oh, his book. I hate the title of his book, but it's called the perfect health diet. Like, uh, what do you think that's a big promise to make? Yeah, it's a very of, big promise to make. But I feel like it was a little bit more. He brings up the thyroid a lot. Like he took issue with a lot of like the paleo space mm. initially being like kind of low carb. So he was big into like adding starches in. I feel like kind of a lot of Chris Cressers 
early work was sort of based on some of Paul's Hmm. work. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I haven't heard a ton from him, but he was a researcher. I don't think he was in the nutrition space, but he got really sick. And one thing he described in his book that always kind of stuck with me is that when you take antibiotics, your endotoxin load goes way down. So like, because you're Mm. clearing some stuff out, um, typically what happens is your immune system kind of takes a takes a break because endotoxins kind of to some degree you don't want tons of endotoxins but some degree of endotoxins by the gut bacteria prime the immune system so when you take an antibiotic the endotoxin load goes down and the immune system sort of like netflix and chills like it doesn't do anything it becomes very lazy a lazy immune system and um when you in the antibiotic, there's this weird lag where you've kind of, where the immune system's then more lazy because the endotoxin load is still a little bit lower, but then, you know, it allows for more of the dysbiosis in certain bugs to grow because the immune system's kind of down, essentially. So not only are you wiping Mm -hmm. out a bunch of bugs, I do think that there's kind of some immune system shifts that happen um, with just some of the endotoxins cycling down a Mm. bit that could create more dysbiosis even outside of just clearing things out Hmm. yeah that's interesting i also know i've i've seen some indication that for better for worse like all of the good guys that we want more of they tend to be a bit more delicate and they tend (laughs) to not grow back as quickly right so like lactobacilli and bifidobacterium and you know, the short chain fatty acid producers and acromancia, like if, if you take them down a few notches, it's going to take a while for them to grow back versus freaking proteobacteria for whatever reason, they just (laughs) rebound like nobody's business and they come back really quickly. Um, And then of course, there's also, you can open up this niche, the space in the gut ecosystem for not only proteobacteria, Mm. AKA bad bacteria to kind of grossly simplify the microbiome. Yeah, like I'm not big on labels, but proteobacteria are not your friends. Um, But also candida and yeast overgrowth. Like a Mm. lot of us have had the experience where you take an antibiotic for the sniffles or an infection, and then wham, bam, you get vaginal candidiasis or thrush. And the same thing happens in the gut to some extent. So it's like, you know, antibiotics not only create bacterial dysbiosis, but they also can create fungal dysbiosis and fungal overgrowth, both of which can be tricky to get rid of once you have them. And they could persist for a while after that because you've made them a nice habitat and they don't want to go anywhere. Um, But yeah, definitely, you know, I think that most of the people listening to this podcast, uh, on some level, most of us would agree that limiting unnecessary antibiotics is a good idea. Um, I think that rifaximin is given a little bit of a free pass uh, mm. in the SIBO I'm space. I'm glad you brought it up. I was just thinking that. Mm. I don't know if it's 100% innocent. It's probably the least likely to cause long-term damage to the gut microbiome. But like, if you go in those SIBO forums and poke around, there are people who swear up and down that they took rifaximin and then they got C. diff because of it. Right. So it's not to say you're 100% safe if you stick with rifaximin. 
I think that it's, it's, you know, if I if I had SIBO for sure, and I had to pick one or the other, I would pick that over like Cipro or oh, doxycycline or something else. Um, but yeah, I think that that one gets a free pass. And even worse still, freaking herbal antimicrobials get the biggest free pass of all. Right, right. All of all of y'all to to sound more southern than I actually am. We need to calm down with the oregano and the berberine and the dysbioside and the FC-cidal. And like, these are all great products and I love them a lot. But also, we're kind of being hypocrites. If we kind of like, on the one hand, if we sit back here and go, oh, I can't believe the doctor prescribed antibiotics for that ear infection. Oh, don't they know better by now? Or like, oh, I can't believe that doctor prescribed antibiotics for that like cough. Don't they know any better by now? Oh. But then on the other hand, you're like pounding down the berberine and the oregano and the allicin like it's right. nobody's business. Like we can't, we can't do both of those things. We need to at least be a little bit more cautious with the overuse of herbal antimicrobials and respect them as what they are, which is natural antibiotics. Right, right. No, 100%. Yeah, I, I think that that's, it's so ingrained in the SIBO and IBS space to just use them a little bit willy nilly or like the second symptoms return. I know Anna, I know GI docs that'll just say, this is a chronic issue, you need to take antibiotics yep. forever. And yep. it's just going to be something you're gonna have to cycle through every three to six months. And that's lazy. <laughs> that's, yep. that's lazy. And again, like I even see, you know, NDs and uh, yep. functional medicine doctors saying you're gonna have to cycle through and herbal antimicrobials every three to six months. And mm -hmm. that's not, I've never really seen that to be the case for, for 99.9% .9 of people. Um, I think you're probably not getting all the way there if you feel like you need to right. lean on that type of a strategy, right? right? Like there's some stone that has not been turned or there's some root cause. I think that maybe the exception, like to your point, 99.9% .9 of people. When we say that, I guarantee a lot of our listeners are going to be like, but I'm the 0.1%. Right. No, you're not. <laughs> Sit back. Um, what I think I mean by that, and I'm going to, I will share my opinion and then you can weigh in too. The 0.1% in that case where they really honestly might need to think about longer term antimicrobials or cycling through them every now and then, this would be like the short bowel syndrome kind mm -hmm. of people, like the old school, the OG SIBO kind of people. Maybe, maybe something like systemic sclerosis, where there's a lot of adhesions and a lot of scar tissue, like confirmed for real, for real scar tissue right. in there. Um, and I could probably wrap my head around like people who had had gastric bypass surgery, mm. or Ru and Y, and their intestines were sliced and diced, and their stomach was sliced and diced to a point where they no longer had normal anatomy. But shy of those three scenarios, I would bet solid money that nobody listening outside of those three scenarios fits into that 0.1% that we just talked about. Yeah, it's interesting you bring bring that up. I, I did have a client. This is so interesting, too. So I did have this client who had trauma to his abdomen. I think, like, mm. he was in, he was, I don't know if he was in the Marines. He was in some sort of armed forces. Mm. And he had, he had had some sort of trauma to the ab abdomen and had to have, like, 
his stomach removed essentially um so he was just a he was a crazy case where you know i took him on i was like i don't know like we can kind of figure this out together i'll research and help you but like i don't know if i'm the right fit and he still wanted to kind of proceed but the interesting thing for him so like people had been telling him for years because this happened you know a long time ago, like 30 years ago. So like throughout time, mm-hmm. people were saying, oh, you have too much bacteria. Like even before SIBO was like a big thing, huh. they were suspect of it. So he would take antibiotics for it. And this was like back in like the 2000s, like, you know, when SIBO wasn't a big thing. Um, But what was so fascinating about his case is that he felt way more responsive to probiotics than mm. antibiotics. But yet, his doctor was adamant to do the antibiotics like every month on the dime. Like, so like every month he was doing antibiotics and like getting worse and worse and worse. And, um, I was kind of just like, well, you seemed like you were doing really well with probiotics. Like, why don't you just like give that a try? It doesn't seem like you're doing well with the antibiotics. So again, like even within the context of like, these might be the people that are more responsive to, a strategy that is more cyclical in antibiotics, I still mm-hmm. think there's people that aren't going to respond even in those categories. So there's so much nuance yeah. to all this stuff. And it's still so important to listen to how you're responding and not just continue well, yeah. down a path if you're not doing well. Um, well could you just imagine the amount of ego that those <laughs> doctors had right. to say, like, I know that your body is telling you one thing, but I know what's right. going on and it's completely counterintuitive to what you just told me. Right. Like, don't listen to your body. Listen to me instead. Like right. I went to medical school. Like that just, that's such a, like a wild amount of ego to me to just straight up tell somebody like, I'm going to ignore your perception right. of the situation and what makes you feel better. And I'm going to insist that you do my thing instead. <laughs> right. Right. <sighs> humans well wild creatures um no i'm glad you brought up antibiotics um i think and god um a gift to you my dietitian sweetheart also so there was an article that i found um as i was working on SIBO hero there was one article i found i think it was titled something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and celiac disease coincidence or causation Mm. And one of the things that they pointed out, um, they were basically saying like, why doesn't everybody with celiac disease develop SIBO? Like if there is a correlation, why do some people get SIBO and some people do not? And one of the theories that they proposed, one of two theories, and I thought this one was really worth exploring, is maybe these people didn't have SIBO to begin with, but going gluten-free and mm. reducing their their carb and their fiber intake created a, basically created a diet that was conducive for the overgrowth of bacteria, mm. right? And like, I know for me, before I went gluten-free, my diet was like 99% gluten and dairy and soy. And then right. I cut out all of those things. And like, for better or worse, I know we don't like to admit this, but the number one source of prebiotic fiber in the American diet is wheat. Yeah. So, you know, you take somebody who's maybe not getting a ton of fiber or maybe not getting the RDA anyway, and then you take out the bread 
that was serving as like their one and only prebiotic source, yeah, or like a major prebiotic source for them, all of those nice fructans. And now it's like, okay, you went gluten free, and that could be anti inflammatory for you if you have celiac disease. But you also tanked your prebiotic intake, and you're doing a lot more simple white carbs like white rice flour and potato flour and cornstarch. Mm. And, you know, like more processed high glycemic gluten free items like gluten free breads. So I thought that that was a really viable theory. And I really hope it's explored more in future research. I'm actually I'm going to try to pull the quote. Mm. And I'll read you the exact quote that I put in SIBO Hero because I thought it was that compelling. But no. would you like to weigh in, oh, dietitian of mine? No, I think that that's really fascinating. Um, and I'd be I I should probably read that paper. Um, but yeah, I I think any sort of major dietary change like that, I think could be shocking to the system in various ways. I also wonder too, like. Sometimes if you're newly celiac um, and you're relying heavily on like kind of ultra processed gluten-free foods, like to a major extent, like I don't think having some gluten-free bread is problematic, but like, you know, if you're just eating kind of gluten-free crap, so to speak, um, or just like not, I hate calling it crap because it's still, some stuff's still pretty delicious that's gluten-free and processed. But like if you're eating a lot of less nutrient rich foods, but just kind of sticking to gluten-free, I also think you're going to lose vitamins and minerals and things like that too from some of maybe the wheat as well if it's fortified. Um, Although to, to play devil's advocate to that, if you have celiac disease and you're malabsorbing because of the celiac yeah. disease, even if the food itself has fewer vitamins and minerals, you might absorb more of them right. if you're not bombarding it's a, your poor it's a good gut point. with wheat. It's a good point. So maybe it's a wash. But uh, yeah. may I interrupt you for a second? Because I found the quote that I wanted yes. to share. Yeah. And I was correct. So uh, I had the title correct or close to correct. Uh, the PubMed ID for listeners, if you want to read this, was 322-95433. Um, and I'll send it to you, Amy, after we hang up. So Uh, The quote that I pulled was another possible option is that the sudden dietary shift which occurs when removing gluten is conducive for bacterial overgrowth, regardless of the occurrence of celiac disease. Mm -hmm. And they elaborate a little bit more on like, again, kind of processed refined carbs versus wheat, which does for better or worse, have more prebiotic content and FODMAP content in it. Um, But yeah, I thought that that was a really solid observation. And there were there have been some other studies that kind of suggest that, or at least that there's a relationship with symptoms like right. that. The 2019 paper that we like to quote all the time about small intestinal microbial dysbiosis is associated with the symptoms, yada, yada. Right. That one, they took people who were eating what they called a high fiber diet, which is was 11 grams of fiber per 1000 calories per yeah, day. It's not even so like, like what's recommended. Yeah, so you know? it's like, okay, they're maybe getting the RDA. That's what we're calling a high fiber diet. I think the RDA is 14 grams per thousand. Or, or, or it's what's, I okay. think it's, a, I actually think it's USDA that recommends that. But that's okay. kind of the general I've, thing that I've heard from official. Yeah, I've heard like 25 grams is kind of the recommended. So 25 for women, 38 for men, but 14 grams per thousand okay. is sort of okay. what I've heard. But yeah. Okay, yeah. So like, okay. 
11 so per 22, 22 grams like 22 per 2, grams a day like big whoop-de-doo but right. anyway these were the people on the high fiber diet they were 100 percent asymptomatic no signs and symptoms of ibs or SIBO. no nothing they put them on a high simple sugar mm-hmm. low fiber diet like less than 10 grams a day of fiber for one week under the direction of a dietitian, and they gave them all of their food so you know exactly what they're eating. All of them developed, all of those people developed symptoms of like SIBO or IBS from that intervention. Right. 80% of them, the symptoms went away within a week of, a, of going back to their normal high fiber diet. And they did, they tested for SIBO and like whether or not the person like developed SIBO or maintained SIBO or eradicated SIBO didn't matter. But just switching these people from a high fiber diet to a low fiber diet elicited all of the symptoms of IBS and SIBO. And then they switched them back to their normal diet and then they were fine. And 50% of these people that were asymptomatic and had a a high fiber diet at baseline, 50% of them had SIBO supposedly. Right. Well, and I think what's so fascinating about that is like, you know, I think the American diet, I can't remember if it's like 11 grams or 15 grams, but like on average, the American diet's really deficient in fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something we really emphasize a ton. I, I think now it's being marketed a little bit better. But, you know, fiber is not something that has been like a pivotal thing to get into your diet for most people, unless maybe you have like heart disease or something and they're like, eat oatmeal because yeah. of soluble but fiber. It, yeah, it's like oatmeal and psyllium husk, though. It's right. not right. vegetables. Well, yeah, I know. It's so again, like I think. The thing that's so interesting is that in and of itself, like your diet being deficient in variety and fiber is probably going to set you up for um, dysbiosis and imbalance and could be a root cause in and of itself. And then you have people that get diagnosed with SIBO and IBS that are told go on these restrictive diets forever and then wonder why they have dysbiosis. Yeah. And it's, it's just a whole mess. It's just a whole yeah. mess. It's just a whole hot ass mess. It is. Yeah, it's it's kind of a lot. But um, but yeah, I think, again, going back to what would cause dysbiosis, again, antibiotics, antimicrobials, restrictive diets, just not getting enough fiber, like, one other, oh, these things are so common. Right. One other thing I did want to bring up that's just kind of random that I see pattern wise with some of especially my female clients, it could be male clients too, but anyone that's been consistently someone that like yo-yo diets or, Mm. and this goes back to just not getting enough nutrition. But I think like if you've been someone that's been very intense about like weight loss or dieting, Mm. I do think that there's a high or there's a high percentage chance that like just the dysfunction from a metabolism standpoint, a nervous system standpoint, a hormone standpoint, all those things mm-hmm. are going to lead to an environment that could, you could develop IBS or SIBO symptoms. Yeah. Um, dysbiosis and uh, digestive capacity issues, motility issues, all those things can occur in like a chronically low caloric state. Um, yeah. But I just think it's not necessarily something that's discussed as a risk factor a bunch, but just being someone that's dieted a bunch and like has had Mm. maybe their metabolism never like regulate for 20 years could potentially be a factor for people too. Yeah. Well, and and just think of it this way too. Your brain 
takes up, a, what is it, like 20% of the calories that you consume? Or is it 20% of the oxygen that you take in? What are the other, or maybe both, but your brain Your guess is as good as mine. Like, I think it might be 20% of the oxygen. I don't even know. I'm not going to wager a bet. But um, your brain consumes 20% of something. Let's, let's leave it at that. Whether it be calories or... Um, or glucose or oxygen. It's it's one of the three. But right, your the point is your brain is very demanding on your metabolism. And you need fuel delivery, you need oxygen delivery, like and if you have a, a chronically compromised metabolism, and you're not delivering fuel and oxygen to your nervous system on a regular basis, it's just not going to be able to do its job. And that's all right. there is to it. And I'll say this too. This will segue into maybe one Can more. Can I say one other thing wrap up. about that? Sure. Yeah. Your brain needs glucose, not ketones. It can't survive off ketones. It does need glucose. Yeah. And I will just back <laughs> away. Fighter on it. I will back away from from that. But just yeah, you need well, consistent blood sugar. Do, yeah, even when you do keto. Yeah, like you're still, to appease the keto people, you right. still have some blood sugar in your right. blood. Right. Like, you know, so we can't deny that glucose is a requirement for human life. Right. right. Um, whether that is ingested or it's like made from your body because you're not giving it glucose directly, like we could we could talk about that a little bit because your body is capable of making some glucose if it needs to. But your your I agree, your brain needs good, healthy, stable glucose, right? Maybe, maybe not on the ketone conversation. Again, we have a whole episode on the keto diet. So go check it out. Um, We're not like hardcore anti keto. But I would say I'm hardcore anti keto the way it is practiced 90% of the time in this day and age. That's what I would say. I just think it's more the I like, you know, the way it's touted in the keto space, like, oh, my brain runs on ketones and like, that's how it should run. And it's like, sure. uh, like not that ketones can't potentially help your brain, but like, you know, your brain and your neurons need glucose to function optimally. And again, your body can adapt in a low carbohydrate state to provide your body with glucose in the bloodstream. So definitely yeah, it's can like, the case. you'll kind of, you'll end up supplementing with some blood right. sugar that's made homemade and you'll end up supplementing with the ketones and the two of those combined can keep you afloat right um, right i just think yeah, it's I kind mean, of funny it's like my brain doesn't need carbs it's just it gets ketones and i'm like what okay, okay cool and you say that angrily in all caps lock like, right okay sure okay. Um, um you know it's i'm gonna give some credit um to disease karazi and now i will say disease is going more into like favoring keto in recent years which is interesting but um, he always did a really good job back in the day, at least, of bringing us back to kind of the fundamentals. So like in his brain chemistry course, for example, he would talk about the pathways and the dopamine and the acetylcholine and the GABA. But then he kept bringing it back. And he's like, what do neurons need to be healthy? Right. Glucose. Yeah. Oxygen. Stimulation. Right. Those are the three. If you are lacking one of the three, nothing else matters. Don't even bother with the thyroid. Don't even bother with the histamine. Don't right. even bother with anything else. If one of those th- three things is out of whack, good luck to you because right. the nervous system is not going to work. And I appreciated that, that, 
you know, he wasn't just all about like, buy my special proprietary serotonin supplement. He was always like, no, guys, like, if your person is anemic, you really need to work on that first. Right. Or like, if their blood sugar regulation is crap, you really need to work on that first. Right. Um, but um, shoot, I think that there was another point I was going to make and I derailed. But your thing was very worthwhile. So I'm I'm glad for the derailment, but I did derail a little bit and I don't remember what I was going to say now. Um, I can think yeah. of one or like kind of a combination. Like okay. I think liver and gallbladder stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, again, gallbladder wise, you know, I've definitely worked with my share of people that have like gallbladder sludge or like a couple small stones or like have yep. had their gallbladder removed. And sometimes again, just having poor bile flow can be a factor for, for SIBO just because bile does play like an important antimicrobial role. It also Mm -hmm. is important for digestion of certain nutrients like D and A that can kind of regulate microbes. I think it, it, um, again, it's just going to help you, uh, better your nutrition in general, if you're able to to digest well, but yeah, I think like that, um, could certainly be at play like for MMC function and motility. So that if, if there's like sludginess or weirdness going on in the gallbladder, if you've had it removed, that could potentially predispose you to more IBS SIBO-esque symptoms. I also think too, that sometimes there's like upstream stuff in the liver that might affect like bile production. Um, I will say too, that, you know, the, secret to or like you don't want to dip too low in fat i find sometimes with some of my gallbladder patients like the knee-jerk reaction is like oh being freaked out of fat but if you do Mm. that too hardcore then it does hinder flow as well so yeah um but yeah i think like sludginess can certainly cause some issues um i think from a liver standpoint because the liver produces bile like if you're kind of low in choline in your diet or mm. um, makes you wonder about vegans and vegetarians. Yeah. Vegans, especially. Yeah. I had a poor client. I, I tried to get her to take choline. She was very freaked out about taking a choline supplement. Um, I think because of uh, what is the, Oh, now I can't think of it. There's some sort of fallout with some choline based stuff with some microbial microbial byproducts and now i can't think of what it's called oh uh, like tmao or something like that tmao or tma yeah tma oh okay yep yeah that's what she was all freaked out about and i was like but you're not eating any like i'm really worried about your like you're gonna go from zero to something you'll be fine like you're not eating five steaks a day right so um but yeah i think that sometimes there could be some production stuff that happens um, and then again, like if the liver is just inflamed for some reason, it could certainly cause some bile flow issues. Yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt. Will you kind of bring your mic a little bit closer to you, by the way? Oh, you sound a little bit quiet. Sorry. Is this better? Yeah. Sorry. I was moving trying, a little trying to bit keep away. that smooth, sexy audio going. Mixmaster Mike's going to have his work cut out for me. For That's him, all right. I mean, he'll, he'll normalize the levels and do all the filters and the magic that he does. So remember when he asked me, what did he ask me about my computer? I don't know. Oh, he asked you if you had a hard disk drive or a um, right. And I was like, solid eh. state drive. And you were like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> like I got a computer. 
Yeah. And that's what I know. And it goes on the internet. <laughs> I can Google and I can find links to talk to people, but that's about it. That's all I know. There you go. There you go. Well, you're doing better than my dad. He still doesn't know how to turn on a computer, well, let alone do anything on it. So you're seems you're like doing a low good. bar. We're still it back seems on. like a low bar. It is. I'm still trying to teach him the art of the double click. Okay. Kid you not. No, still hasn't God. mastered that one. He'll do like the click, click. I'm like, no, dad, double click, click, click. No, dad, double click, damn it. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, it's, you know, at this point, he doesn't need a computer. He'll just he'll just take that lack of skill to the grave. It's all right. He he got through this much without needing a computer, so he'll do okay. I know. I rem- One other thing I will mention that cracks me about my dad. So my dad, it was like, had a very successful career as an engineer in aviation. So he worked with like airplanes and stuff. And... um he, again, by the end, was like the Simon Cal at his work. He worked for GE. Um, but he was kind of like someone that would just sit on panels and stuff and judge projects. Mm. But it cracked me up because I don't think he ever learned how to do a PowerPoint. But he had to give presentations all the time. So he would just have, like, young people do his PowerPoints. <laughs> so I'm like, don't you ever, like, want to, like, make adjustments and stuff? And he's like, no, I just have them do it. Like, I'm like... Okay. okay. I just don't understand how you've so made funny. it like your whole career and like not learned how to do a PowerPoint. Um, but again, he made it work. He was just like having his minions do his PowerPoints. But I mean, when you're big and important, you've got minions to spare. You might as well just have them do the PowerPoint for you. I guess so. Although honestly, like coming off out of the other side of doing SIBO Hero now, um, I kind of like weirdly like PowerPoints. Oh, yeah. Like, I like setting up, like, the animations and, like, the fade in, the fade out. I have this one series of slides. You'll see it. You'll see it when you get Zebo Hero. But um, the, which it should have probably been emailed to you as we record this, actually, because mm-hmm. today it was coming out. But I have this series of slides in the root cause section of the practitioner course, actually. And it says, the mechanism will set you free. Oh, my gosh. And then I go through, like, you know, kind of like this arrow this arrow this and it's like a flow chart of what happens physiologically with some of these root causes but the recurring theme the recurring slide that i have is the mechanism will set you free and i think that needs to be a t-shirt oh like gosh, if you totally. can understand the mechanism you can get there you can figure it out but you need to know the mechanism first right uh, maybe not the individual people maybe like this is more of a practitioner thing i think uh, you need to understand the mechanisms that you're chasing after before you prescribe supplements and and do stuff. Right. But um, well, I think that's going to be a lot of the things. Certainly, um, I want to I want to be mindful of the time and and I think this is a good point to wrap up anyhow. But yes. you know, you heard it here, folks. So uh, post infectious IBS, post infectious SIBO, you know, whatever you want to call that kind of world. Um, you know, that's that hypochlorhydria and stress are probably the top three that I see with my patients who have SIBO like those. And again, it doesn't have to be immediate, but usually this is like these sorts of things would be happening probably in like the six months ish before the onset of symptoms. Typically that's what I'm looking out for. Um, antibiotics. Absolutely. I have seen many cases of, of like IBS that is later diagnosed as SIBO and the triggering event was antibiotic use for like a UTI or a cold or a flu or a sniffle or whatever. 
So antibiotic use causing that dysbiosis, absolutely. Probably if there's a major dietary shift or like a yo-yo dieting situation where you're, you're changing your diet, um, either from like a calorie perspective or a carb perspective or a fiber perspective, like tanking any of those three things could probably create dysbiosis and dysmotility enough to cause either IBS or SIBO. Um, and then things like hypothyroidism, maybe even autoimmunity itself or like persistent mm-hmm. inflammation itself. Uh, but like I said earlier, there could be a million more root causes for IBS or SIBO. But if you can kind of work through the mechanism a little bit and think, all right, is it plausible that this thing would freak out my nervous system or cause dysbiosis or, you know, freak out my mast cells? You can kind of zoom back out and think about it that way. So like, you know, we just came off of a mold episode not that long ago. Like there's no research to say that that is linked with SIBO or IBS that I'm aware of. Right. But if you think mold is inflammatory, and you need to detox it and get it out of your body. So, all right, detox, start thinking liver, gallbladder, bile flow kind of stuff for one. But also, if something is inflammatory, it's probably going to piss off some neurons right. or make it a lot harder for them to do their job. So, you know, maybe I could see this being a root cause for SIBO for some people, maybe. So you can kind of work through it like that and think about the root causes in this way. And then you can come to your own conclusions about other root causes that you might be questioning after this episode. Mm. Hopefully that helps. Love it. Love it. Love you. Love you. You're such a piosh. (laughs) Piosh. That's going to be the new one. Again, that's like the mechanism will set you free should be one new t-shirt I make. And then... Piach, please, should be the the next one with Amy like snapping. Oh my gosh. That should be the next one I make. Look, I'm just gonna, I'm, you know, I'm gonna retire and I'm just gonna open Nikki's t shirt Emporium. Oh yeah. And it's I gonna think be you'd like rock that. I could, like, I, I could do it, honestly. Or maybe an Etsy shop. Maybe that's like the stepping stone to get yeah. to Nikki's t shirt Emporium. Because going from nothing to an emporium does sound a little bit daunting. But yeah, maybe maybe I need to open myself up an Etsy shot and get crackalacking on this. Show. <sighs> That's right. Show. Dreams. Dreams. That'll be the the next the next evolution phase. of my career. How about next that? Phase. But for the time being, I'm gonna stay here and chill out with you guys and talk about nerdy gut stuff. <gasps> and oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. We are getting so close to a guest episode that I'm like positively gonna pee myself with excitement are you even gonna be able to handle yourself i don't know am i gonna have to take control take the reins possibly well no i'll probably just like it's gonna be like you're gonna word vomit everywhere probably like maybe "Ah!" like you know like just jump like maybe be way overexcited that's probably what i'm picturing now well it's gonna be i was very excited to talk to emma from therapy in a nutshell Mm -hmm. last year too and i think i controlled myself the funny thing is so Side tangent to wrap up the episode. I worked so with my bachelor's degree, I did an internship as like a personal training intern for this place that trained like higher end athletes. And when all of us interns got there for the internship, they kind of did like a, you know, a tour and a debriefing. And they straight up told us they were like, look, we have a lot of famous athletes here. You cannot be a goober and you cannot like ask them for their autograph or be inappropriate, like you have to be cool about this. And like among them, so for example, like the LA Galaxy, David Beckham's team or former team, like we trained the Galaxy. 
Yeah. But David Beckham wasn't there at the time. He mm-hmm. was like in England or something. So I never got to meet with him. Posh. Yeah, with Posh Spice. Exactly. So, you know, stuff like that, where it was like, we had like Olympians and combine athletes and like NFL athletes and, and the, the LA Galaxy, like David Beckham's team. And all of the other interns were like sports people. Right. You know, like a lot of people who major in exercise science or kinesiology are very like sportsy athletic type of people. And they're like passionate about exercise. And all of them, they were like, Oh, this is going to be really hard. Okay, I'll try. Oh, my God, I have to really think about this. And I was like, I'm good. All right. <laughs> like, I don't care about sports. All right. I'm not going to know who any of these people are. I honestly got I would not know who David Beckham was if he walked by me and talk to me like in right. the hallway, I wouldn't know who he was unless he had a jersey on that said David Beckham. I would I, I would associate the name of like, oh, that's a famous person, but I would not know who he was from a hole in the wall normally. You know what's a cute so, David Beckham story, by the way, before we wrap up? What? What? So oh. when the queen died, he like waited in the same line as all the like the regular folks. So like he was just hanging out with all like the other people waiting to like see the queen's body. I don't know what they were waiting for, but they were in this long line for like what? 12 hours. Like it was, it was like insane. It was like, they had been there all day. Mm. It just would be funny to like be in line with like some random with line with a famous person, you know? Yeah. Um, well, it is kind of nice. Like, like you are not more special than us. You're going to, well, that's what they the were saying. They were saying thing. too, yeah. like that he could have jumped the line, you know? Yeah. But he didn't. He wasn't like acting like he was better than everybody else. Well, look at that. I don't know anything about David Beckham. And now I have a, now I have a favorable view on the man. Oh yeah. And he's very posh. Well, that does wed brownie points because I was self-proclaimed the Spice Girls biggest fan when I was Oh, I love the Spice Girls. So, oh my God. We should have a whole Um, episode on Spice Girls. (laughs) No, we should just have a viewing party for the Spice World movie. Oh yes. Do you know... (laughs) I have a really funny story I have to tell you off camera about okay. something. Okay. That's hilarious, but intrigued. I can't I can't say it on, on I'm TV. very intrigued. We'll watch Spice World and then the Britney Spears road trip movie. Oh That'll my. be like our double feature. <laughs> Crossroads. And we'll stream Isn't it, it called like Crossroads or something? Yes, Crossroads. Yeah. We'll we'll stream it live. It'll be like a big to do. And then we'll like occasionally pause the movie and answer questions about gut health or something. Yes, It'll exactly. Oh my god. Um well, now that you guys have the most random episode ever to look forward to, at some point in the future, um, I'm not going to divulge the guest appearance, but just know that we have a super cool, super amazing guest appearance, and I'm super pumped, and I'm probably going to squeal just a little bit. Um, and yeah, I think that's I think that's a wrap. So thank you guys for tuning in. As always, I hope you're enjoying the super sexy audio. I'm going to mention this like every episode for the rest of time. I think just just to like make my husband cringe. Um, but really, it I think we're sounding amazing. Now I look back at season one episodes and I'm like, ooh, the audio did need some work and I just didn't know. So apologies, but also, it, you know, it is what it is. We're learning with you. Uh, we're just learning how to podcast. You're learning about the gut. Mm-hmm. But uh, thank you, you know, for liking, subscribing, leaving a nice five-star review, doing all the things that you do. And we will see you back here on the IBS Freedom Podcast for a super cool guest interview. I think I think that'll be the next episode after we record this. So we will see you then. In the meantime, take care. 